Before we begin, I want to tell you about a really funny and insightful movie podcast called I Saw What You Did. Every week, Millie DeCherico and Daniel Henderson share a double feature with a different wild theme and explore how our life stories impact the movies that we love. Millie and Danielle discuss cult classics through a feminist lens, have conversations about their film crushes throughout the ages, and provide hilarious hot takes on just about everything. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can follow I Saw What You Did wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. You're listening to Imaginary Worlds, a show about how we create them and why we suspend our disbelief. I'm Eric Malinsky. So a couple years ago, I was really into this show called Terminator Sarah Connor Chronicles. And in the show, the Terminator was actually this really attractive young woman played by Summer Glau who was sent back in time to protect John Connor when he was a teenager. Come with me if you want to live. The network knew that she was the big selling point. The ads had her kind of naked airbrushed torso and head hanging by wires like she just come off an assembly line. If I'm damaged, we should know. Even John Connor had confused feelings about his protector. Right here. Reach down under the breastplate. There. What does it feel like? Cold. That's good, right? That's good. It's perfect. Summer Glau has become kind of a, um, a big crush for a lot of geeky guys like myself because she was in uh, other sci-fi shows like Dollhouse and Firefly. But I realized that I, was a- I actually found her character really attractive. Like the killer robot from the future. And uh, this is something I would not normally admit to other people and sure as hell not admit on a podcast, but it is a perfect way into the subject. So around this time, I started dating my wife, Serena, and she wanted to play that game where you make a list of celebrities that you, your partner is theoretically allowed to sleep with. She got the idea from a friend's episode. I figured this is a fantasy, you know, it's not like I'm actually giving her permission to have sex with John Hamm or Paul Rudd if she ever ran into them. So, you know, at first I said, oh, I think I'd like to put Summer Glau on my list. And she said, oh, okay, yeah, she's cute. And I said, you know, actually, to be totally honest, I think I'd rather just put her character, the the robot, on the list. In fact, there's another robot character from this uh, computer animated series about Green Lantern, this really kind of brilliant, sexy robot named Aya. And uh, Wonder Woman and Batgirl and um, Serena was not amused. Using a robot or an animated character doesn't really work because they never change. They will always look like that. 
So th- is that what bothers you that you feel like I've I've now created a standard that if you're not um and you're not well, a... it doesn't help. <laughs> really? That <laughs> like... weird. I mean, who can? What woman can actually <laughs> match? So like essentially these fantasy characters. Okay. That's kind of weird. I get it. But in my defense, the idea of the sort of desirable robot goes way back in science fiction. Here's Despina Kakudaki, who wrote a book called Anatomy of a Robot. One of the first stories that shows an artificial woman uh, in love uh, with men and men in love with her is a story by Lester Del Rey from 1938 called Helen Oloy. These scientists decide that they want to have a new robotic housekeeper, they made make a new model, and then they promptly fall in love with her. And she's described as a dream in synthetics and span metals and things like that. Um, that shows us a little bit of what I think is the main backdrop of the stories, which is to imagine an, an idealized, perfect beloved that might actually be less challenging than a real woman might be. Helen O'Loy is a forerunner to the Stepford Wives, Rachel from Blade Runner, even the movie Her, where a guy falls in love with his operating system. But that movie's kind of an outlier, because usually a big selling point of the genre is when the human character explores the body of the android. It's indestructible. It has replaceable body parts. It's very compartmentalized. It has clarity or simplicity in terms of its pur- purpose. And then it has the kinds of spaces that I am always fascinated by that open up. Like you open the skull and you see inside and it has wiring. Or you open the chest and you look inside and it has buttons that light up. Um, very easy kind of anatomies for these robotic figures, as if it is the alternative to the vulnerable, very fleshy, very gooey, very um, sometimes smelly human body. And it, uh, it forgets a little bit just how resilient and indestructible the human body can be. Yes, we don't have replaceable body parts in this easy way, but we have this unbelievable resilience and we have this unbelievable ability to respond to disease, to recuperate, to, to grow. So it's, it's a very interesting thing. I don't know why we need this discourse. But a lot of scientists want to have this discourse. Two professors at Victoria University in New Zealand published a paper where they proposed a club in the year 2050 called the Yum Yum Club, where all the sex workers have been replaced with robots. And this is their plan to solve the problem of prostitution. And then there's the writer David Levy, who wrote a serious book called Love and Sex with Robots, although he had a little trouble on Colbert. The most common reason, I think, at the beginning will be that there are millions of people out there in the world who, for one reason or another, can't establish normal relationships with humans. They're lonely, they're miserable, <laughs> and robots, when they're sophisticated enough, will be an excellent alternative. Are these, are these people who can't establish a relationship with other, uh, other human beings, are they, by any chance, people who write about love and sex with robots? <laughs> Sex with robots, that's what we're talking about. That's what everybody's talking about on Twitter now, at 680CJOB and on our Facebook page. And this is from a Canadian radio show. The guest is Neil MacArthur, a professor of applied ethics at the University of Manitoba. Um, People always say, well, why is it different from a vibrator? But the fact is, robots are things that we, anything that reminds us of a living being or a human, we connect with them, we attribute, even if we know better, we start to attribute souls to them and we start to connect with them emotionally. And I think that's where people start to get ethically concerned. This is not just 
a vibrator. This is not just a toy. This is something that we're going to make a connection with and something that's going to start possibly changing the way we look at relationships and looking at sex. A robot prostitute or soldier can take damage that a human being can't. But Despina says when we buy into this idea, we're lying to ourselves. Very often we treat objects with quite a lot of fascination and we treat objects really well. Um, we, we treat people badly <laughs> as a matter of course in culture. Only people can be truly treated as non-people. Objects are treated differently. Putting watermarks on a beautiful wooden table. Oh, you just feel it as if it is a wound. And so there's a way in which when people make these facile descriptions about treating someone like an object, if you think about how we treat objects, yes, okay, we might kick our car if it doesn't start, but we also love them in a way that is really quite invested. And in many ways, it is always cheaper to abuse people than to invent a machine to do the same labor. But maybe the most interesting take on this subject happened off-Broadway. Honey, what, what language is it speaking? Like, uh, like Chinese or some kind of Asian-y kind of? Japanese. On a Saturday night in Hell's Kitchen, these actors were rehearsing a play about a white couple that buys a Japanese robot. Your flesh looks so real. Leah Nanako Winkler wrote the play. It's called, I'll let her pronounce it. It means important person. Or I, I wanted to title it that because that's essentially what the robot is there for the couple. I saw you bite her. I saw you lick her. The play was part of an off-Broadway festival called Sex with Robots. Mine was the only one that kind of went in a way that was like, we hate this robot and we're, we're very unhappy, so we're going to kill it. A lot of the pieces were like, I, I'm, my wife died, so I'm going to create a robot or um, I'm horny, so I'm going to get this robot sex. Yeah. yeah. So this festival was curated by another playwright named Mariah McCarthy. And she says when she first sent the email out to a lot of her friends asking if they wanted to write a play about sex with robots, they were very excited. And she thought that when the plays came back, they'd be really funny. But they were really dark. In fact, after the show, a friend of hers went up to her and said, you know, you could have called this the Sex with Slaves Festival. Like with, with the woman who creates a robot that will abuse her or with the man who wants his new robot wife to be as dismissive and cold and that relationship to be as fraught as his relationship with his real wife was there's still a sense of like, I have control of this. This is mine. This will do what I say. But Leah doesn't think that's a bad thing. People are sick, you know, like people are fucking sick and you can do all the things that you're embarrassed about communicating to an actual human partner on this robot. So a lot of it is about a lack of You can have a relationship with no shame. Yeah, no shame. You're always accepted. I mean, you know, like, I I, I like seeing guys, humans, but, like, if there was a sexual companion guy and I was rich and, or maybe it didn't cost very much and it looked completely human, it had a nice penis and it was good in bed, I would not be above buying one if I was lonely. I have to say, these two really kind of shattered my stereotype of who thinks about sex with robots. 
and they each admitted that they, they have a big crush on Gigolo Joe, which is Jude Law's character from AI. Well, he's good at, super good at sex and super sexy and like nice in that movie, too. There was something benevolent about him, something kind of like darkly sexy about him, but he, he ultimately wants to help and his intentions are good. I'm afraid it will hurt. Once you've had a love of robot, you'll never want a real man again. But again, reality check, we are nowhere close to making a cyborg that can cross the uncanny valley and pass for a human. Or really cross the room (laughs) and pass for a human walking. The robot in Leah's play is based on a real android called Geminoid F, which was created by a very eccentric scientist named Hiroshi Ishiguro. And she's not that much more sophisticated than a Disney World animatronic. Geminoid F is actually teleoperated. Uh, Ishiguro himself will, like, go into another room and, like, operate her from a computer. (laughs) This is crazy, but he wants to transplant his own soul onto the robot. Despina Kakudaki thinks that these robots are just kind of a narcissistic fantasy. She doesn't understand why they even need gender. The robots in the real world uh, that actually are productive and that do productive labor um, are usually not anthropomorphic. The robots that we sent to Mars, for example, are, you know, working really well and are doing amazing things out there. And it's just wonderful to imagine that there is an element of human culture that's in Mars, collecting samples from rocks and things like that. That's just magnificent. Um, the robots that are transforming the automotive industry or the biotech industry right now. Those are extremely productive robots. Robots that are imagined in robotics projects in everyday life as needing the human form often are fetishistic or sculptural. They are not producing any labor. They're not actually doing very much except to promote the idea of innovation or the idea of a company doing something futuristic. Uh, So they're a lot more symbolic than real. In a way, this whole sci-fi trope is not really even about robots. It's about how we feel when we watch people play robots. My favorite example for that is someone like Commander Data in Star Trek. Data, you are fully functional, aren't you? Of course, but... How fully? In every way, of course. I am programmed in multiple techniques, a broad variety of pleasuring. Oh, you jewel, that's exactly what I hoped. You have this character who is uh, really quite beloved by audiences, um, uh, who is emotionally not able to feel the certain kinds of emotion or certain kinds of pain. Uh, So you have situations where somebody says something and all of his colleagues say, but Data, doesn't it hurt your feelings? Don't you feel upset about this? And he says, I am unable to feel that emotion. Now something, so you can say that that shows a type of lack. Oh, what a pity he's unable to feel that emotion. But the fact that we keep putting him in situations where he might feel that emotion, but actually, happily, he doesn't, it implies a type of investment in not having to feel that emotion ourselves. I mean, it's already started and it's just going to accelerate. People are trying to become cyborgs. They're inserting technology into their brains and into their bodies, which is kind of another way of making love to a robot. But I'm not sure we're going to like the results. When we say in popular culture today, I feel like a robot, which we do say, we don't actually mean anything technological. We mean something very emotional, not really feeling like yourself, not really feeling fully alive. Um, to say I don't feel, I don't feel real to myself or I feel 
I feel mechanical, I'm an automatic pilot, or I feel like a robot. All of those things seem to have a lot of different types of references to other forms of oppression, not just the kind of oppression that you have when you're oppressed by your job or by your boss or by your overseer, but the kind of oppression you feel when you're oppressed by your needs or your limits or your everyday life, your desires. Well, that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. What you think of that, I was, I really wanted to know who, you know, I needed to give you permission to sleep with. No, no. It's just like, I'm a guy. I'm close about these things. I'm like, why, Ugh. why, <laughs> what was the purpose of this game? Like, I still don't understand it. Now I get it. It's, you're asking like, what, who do you find attractive? Five years later. Yes. <laughs> yes. Special thanks to my wife, Serena, to Spina Kakudaki, Mariah McCarthy, Leonica Winkler, Matt Dixon, Darcy Fowler, Alex Harold, Mari Yamamoto, and my editor, Carrie Hillman. You can like the show on Facebook or leave a comment in iTunes. I tweeted E. Malinsky. The show's website is imaginaryworldspodcast.org. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now.